when you come to the New Testament, without question, we're talking about a plurality of elders in each individual church. God built into His church a system whereby there wasn't absolute power, but there was measured accountability along with the authority. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new eight-part series titled Church Government, Monarchy, Anarchy, or Democracy? What does the scripture say about the organizational structure of the church, its governance, or polity? Does the Bible emphasize one type over another? Are there acceptable but differing views that can be accommodated depending on size or perhaps even geography? Well, throughout this series, Tom will present the biblical evidence from Scripture that God requires every church to follow a specific pattern and how that pattern of church governance has been emphasized and practiced by faithful churches throughout history. And Tom, the scriptures do make clear that the organizational structure of the church can have just as much importance as what happens at the church, doesn't it? That's absolutely right. And what's interesting is, actually, the structure of the church shapes what happens in the church. Churchill loved to say that we shape our architecture and then our architecture shapes us. Well, if that's true with the the sort of external form of the building the church meets in, how much more is it true in terms of how the church is structured in terms of its leadership? It's imperative that we understand what the scriptures teach about what the church is to look like and then make sure that we are concerned that the church reflects that in reality. You know, in the end, Everything that we do as believers is to be shaped by the Word of God. And this is just another area in which we need to make sure that that our actions conform to what the Word of God teaches. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. We come again to our study of the church. More than a year ago, we had the opportunity as a church to watch a brief film entitled Unlocking the Mystery of Life. It described the journey of several scientists away from evolution toward intelligent design. The video wasn't arguing for biblical creation. In fact, most of the men aren't even Christians. The focus of the video, which will never be a bestseller, was the bacteria flagellum. The flagellum is that tiny hair that protrudes from a single-cell bacterium and is what enables the bacteria to move. Under powerful microscopes, we were able to see that the flagellum is actually a tiny motor, complete with a hair as a rotor. Really fascinating, because in reality, every human cell is composed of a number of tiny motors, including even a sophisticated assembly line within each individual cell. As I thought about that, not only was I in awe of God's great creative ability, But I was also struck with the fact that even down to the smallest living things, our God is a God of meticulous structure and order. Now when you take that reality and you bring it into the life of the church, it's amazing how immediately those who would agree with what I've just said about the human body and the cells and 
the bacteria flagellum will suddenly back away and come to a different conclusion. Many churches and their leaders think the issue of how the church is organized, its structure is unimportant. If God cared so much to give so much structure and order to the tiniest cell, how in the world could He have left the church of Jesus Christ, His chief base of operations in the world, without a structure and an order? But this is what some say. For example, Donald Miller in his book, The Nature and Mission of the Church, says, no particular structure of church life is divinely ordained. goes on to say, any form which the Holy Spirit can inhabit and to which He may impart the life of Christ must be accepted as valid for the church. As all forms of life adapt themselves to their environment, so does the life of Christ by His Spirit in the church. In other words, structure doesn't really matter. The order and structure of the church is something that's left up to us. But in fact, this issue is absolutely crucial. Because organizational structure determines how people think and act. More and more, that's seen in the business world. Businesses understand that even the structure of an office communicates to people and they act upon that structure and live out the implications of that structure and how they do their work. And if structure is important to secular organizations and even to nations, then certainly the structure of the church should be very important to us. Alexander Strzok, in his excellent book, Biblical Eldership, says this, Some of the worst havoc wrought to the Christian faith has been a direct result of unscriptural forms of church structure. Only a few centuries after the apostles' death, for example, Christ's churches began to assimilate both Roman and Jewish concepts of status, power, and priesthood. Under Christ's name, an elaborately structured institution emerged that corrupted the simple family structure of the apostolic churches, robbed God's people of their lofty position and ministry in Christ, and exchanged Christ's supremacy over His people for the supremacy of the institutional church. What should matter most to us is this. What does the Scripture say about the government, the structure of the church? Bob Sosi, in his little book on the church, says the church must have some form. In fact, it always does. There's no such thing as a church without form. The question remains, he says, as to which form is prescribed in the Scripture. Now, my task is twofold. I want to present the evidence from Scripture to you, and I want to persuade you that God requires every church to follow that pattern. So that's my twofold mission. Show you the evidence from Scripture for a biblical structure and then persuade you that God doesn't just leave it up to us then to decide whether or not we'll take it, but requires every church to follow that pattern. I want to begin by looking a little bit of history, the historical forms of church government. There are several forms, common forms of church government or structure that have and are around, have been around and are around today. First of all, let's look at the Episcopalian model. The Episcopalian model, by definition, is rule by bishops. This form of church government maintains that there are three legitimate church offices. Bishops, presbyters, or they also call them rectors, and deacons. The bishops alone 
the Episcopalians would say, have authority to appoint other bishops, presbyters, and deacons. Now, as far as how far back this goes, they differ. Some Episcopalians trace the authority of the bishop back to the apostles. They call it apostolic succession, much as the Roman Catholic Church does relating to the Pope. Others trace the bishop's authority simply to church history, and still others claim that there's absolutely no historic succession. It's just a good form of government, and this is the way it ought to be done. At the very top is an archbishop, and then you have various bishops overseeing rectors or presbyters, and then they oversee individual congregations. That's the Episcopalian model and structure. Now, who exactly embraces this form? There are several denominations. First of all, the Orthodox, the Anglican in England and some here in the States and other English-speaking parts of the world primarily, Roman Catholicism, and the Methodists follow an Episcopalian model, some of the Methodist denominations. Now, the defense of this model, there are several arguments that they use. The first is that church history argues for it. For example, Lightfoot, in, in an excerpt called The Christian Ministry, says, History seems to show decisively that before the middle of the second century, each church or organized Christian community had its three orders of ministers, those three orders that we talked about. So they would say church history is on their side. Secondly, they would say, look at Acts 15. The position and authority that James takes at the Jerusalem Council is an argument for an Episcopalian model. He seems to be overseeing a council of a number of churches. They would also say, look at Titus and Timothy's role with several churches, and Paul has them interacting, particularly Titus on the island of Crete. And then this is an odd argument, but you'll read it. It's not forbidden in Scripture. Okay. Now, what are the arguments against the Episcopalian model? First of all, in the New Testament, bishop is not a distinct office, but as we'll see next week, Lord willing, it is a synonym for elder. It is absolutely synonymous. So there's no real biblical warrant. There's also no New Testament evidence that bishops were designed to replace the apostles. For example, Paul alone did not ordain Timothy. When it came time to ordain Timothy, was Paul the only guy who said, Timothy, you're the man? No, he says, I want you to stir up the gift. Remember that he, he says there in Timothy, stir up the gift that was conferred to you by what? The laying on of hands of the elders. So Paul didn't assume the position, that's in 1 Timothy 4.14, by the way, he didn't assume the position of a bishop. Now, a second model and we're going to just hurry through these. I'm going to spend most of my time arguing for a biblical model, so I won't give you every bit of argument against and for these models. Uh, hopefully I'll cover all that when we get to the, the biblical approach. The Presbyterian model is a second form of church government in addition to the Episcopalian. This is ruled by elders over both local and regional or national churches as representatives of the members. Basically, you have the congregation, and then you have elders ruling over that congregation, elders in each church, and they constitute what's called a session. And then a number of sessions from individual churches come together and form a presbytery, and then a number of presbyteries come together on a large national level and form a general assembly. That's the structure of the Presbyterian church. The local church, governed by the session, is composed of ruling elders elected by the membership with the teaching elder as the presiding officer. And the next highest 
body, as you see, is the presbytery, includes all the ordained ministers or teaching elders and one ruling elder from each local congregation in a given district. And above the presbytery is the synod, which I didn't include here, and over the synod is the general assembly, the highest court. So you get some idea of, of the structure. You have a combination of ordained men and lay men from each church that constitute these ruling bodies. Typically, the congregation ordains the ruling elders, while only teaching elders ordain other teaching elders. Now, what denominations? Very basic in terms of the denominations that embrace Presbyterian models. Of course, you would expect it. Presbyterians of all stripes follow the Presbyterian model and miscellaneous Reformed churches, sometimes uh, we're bearing various labels, but if they're Reformed, they may or may not embrace a Presbyterian model of church government. Now, what's the defense for this model? They would say, well, first of all, just practically, it gives an opportunity for gifted men to serve beyond their local church. So they get to, they get to sit in on, in the presbytery or the senate or the general assembly, and it uses their gifts beyond the local congregation. They would say it's a demonstration of the unity of the body of Christ. We're all one, and that should be reflected even in how the church is structured. They would say that the distinctions between ruling and teaching in 1 Timothy 5.17 argue in favor. Uh, when we get there, I don't think an argument can be made. You'll, you'll see that once we exegete that text, but that's one of their arguments. Uh, the example of the Jerusalem Council, they also argue, just as the Episcopalians do, on the basis of the Jerusalem Council. Why is that? Because that's the only known example in the Scripture, in the New Testament, of a number of churches coming together for a discussion about some issue. And so they both want to use that as the basis for a, a hierarchy, a structure that involves a number of churches. And they would say the command of Titus 1.5, where he is to appoint elders in every city, argues for oversight of those churches from a centrality, from a central or a centrality of leadership. The arguments against are pretty direct. Scripture nowhere calls for elders to have authority beyond their local flock. We'll, we'll see a number of texts. Not a single one of them calls for elders to exercise their gifts or authority beyond their local flock and congregation. Acts 15 cannot be used to defend Presbyterianism, or for that matter, Episcopalianism, for several reasons. First of all, the apostles were there. That changes everything. If we had an apostle, then maybe that would be different. If we were like some churches in our area and had an apostle, then, then maybe we could argue in favor of this. The church at Antioch voluntarily requested the help of the Jerusalem church. It was not a hierarchy where they had no choice but to go to Jerusalem and be told what to do. They voluntarily requested the help of the Jerusalem church in Acts 15. The entire Jerusalem church sent the letter, according to Acts 15.22. That prompts Grudem to write, if this narrative gives support, that is Acts 15, to regional government by elders... It therefore also gives support to regional government by whole congregations. That's exactly right. That's not at all what the argument is. Now, while I would argue against both Episcopalianism and Presbyterianism, you need to realize that while there may not be an organizational structure that connects churches, cooperation among churches, recognizing our basic unity with other evangelical, Bible-believing churches certainly is evident in the New Testament. I think really looking at the Jerusalem Council definitely forbids this sort of absolute independence 
in attitude and in how we practice the rule and government of the church in local congregations. Look at the relief that's sent back and forth between the churches in the New Testament. There was a sense of community. And I think while I do believe and embrace independence, and we'll look at that in a moment, it doesn't destroy recognizing the basic unity that's ours in Christ. Now, the final form of church government is congregational. Don't be confused by that label. Let me define it for you. When historical theology defines this term, it's defined in this way. Ultimate authority for each local church resides within that church. Each church is completely autonomous. In other words, if you believe in a congregational form of government, you believe that the structure and government of this church is all contained right here in this church. There's not someone else somewhere outside of our church that has a right to rule and govern within this church. So we are congregational in that sense. There are a variety of denominations that embrace this. Congregational churches, Baptist churches, Mennonite, Evangelical Free, Independents. And there's a great diversity. There are many faces, if you will, of congregationalism. Let me give you several of them, five of them to be exact. Congregationalism, that is when the rule of the church happens from within that church, takes several different forms. First of all, there is the single elder or single pastor view of congregationalism. That's where one guy is the main guy. As one legalistic pastor who has now been defrocked or was attempted to be defrocked once put it, he said, I'm not only the dictator in my church, I'm the only tater. This single pastor model of congregational view is practically a combination of democracy, the church members are involved to some degree, and monarchy because one man holds a lot of power and wields that power. But you can see here that typically this is the form it takes. You have a pastor, you have a deacon board, and you have a congregation. It can also, those that deacon board can be an elder board if one man is exercising really the single authority in the church, practically speaking, then it can become a single elder, single pastor model. Many of you grew up in this type of church. You recognize that. You know exactly what it looks like, what it smells like, and uh, you, you understand this. This is one form of congregational. Remember, congregational means in the sense that the structure of the church, the, the order, the authority of the church resides within this individual congregation and not outside of it. A second form that congregational authority takes is the corporate board model. Basically, you have a church board that holds the pastor accountable, and that is the pastors over the congregation, the congregation elects the church board. So that's kind of how it flows. It's a, it's a sort of CEO model of the way the church functions, pulled out of the corporate world, and there are churches, particularly a number of seeker-sensitive type churches function this way. They borrow that CEO model, and that's how they order and structure the church. Another form of congregationalism is pure democracy, and that's where literally the only people in charge are the entire congregation. Everybody in the congregation has an equal vote on every issue, and literally there's no, one else, there's no single person or group of people in charge. It is everybody involved 
in making every decision. It takes a long time to get anything done in a pure democracy. Then there is the congregational form of no government but the Holy Spirit is what Grudem calls it. Basically, it's sort of free-flowing. It can be whatever you want it to be. There are various forms this takes. A better term for this would be anarchy because that's essentially what it is. Every person does that which is right in his own eyes based on what the Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, tells him. But uh, there are churches that try to function this way. This is absolutely brutal in terms of trying to function as a church. And then the final form that congregational government takes is a plural local elder board. Essentially, you have the elders, as you can see here at the top. One of those elders is usually referred to as the pastor or the teaching pastor. The pastor-teacher is another term. And the elders oversee the congregation. Now, what I want us to do is I want to lay out the evidence for this final form because I believe this is what the Scriptures teach, that our church is to be autonomous in the sense that there is no one over this church who isn't a part of this church. But I believe that the, the authority and the outworking of the government and structure of this church from within is not congregational in the sense of everybody voting in a pure democracy. It is not one single man leading as the dictator. Instead, it is a plurality of godly men leading each church. Uh, I know that this is not going to be particularly um, applicable and moving in some special sense. But this is absolutely crucial and foundational for us to go over. And let me give you the reasons in my mind why. Why should we do this? Why should I take the time to lay this foundation? There are essentially two reasons. Because most of us grew up in one of the other models of churches, one of the other kinds of structures of churches. That's what we bring when we come into church. That's how we think of the government of the church. And if it doesn't function that way, we get frustrated. You know, somebody says, wait a minute. What do you mean the elders are doing that? We didn't vote on that. Well, what's happening? You're importing another structural model into the life of the church. And so it's absolutely foundational because most of us grew up in churches with a different model than a plurality of godly men leading the church. In fact, let me just take a little survey. How many of you would say that you grew up in a different model than that? Let me see your hands. That's what I thought. So you can see why it is so foundational for us not to just pass over this but to really lay this foundation solidly. Because this is the church. This is how the church is to operate. And if we don't understand that, if we don't have a base for that, then our minds and our thinking about how the church ought to function simply imports our history. And every time there's a problem, our minds run back to how they solve problems in the Baptist business meeting, usually by fisticuffs, at least in the ones I grew up in. There's a second reason I think it's important for us to make sure we have a handle on this. Not only because most of us grew up in one of these other models, but rarely is the model of church government, whatever it is, biblically defended. It just sort of happens. It's either assumed or it's ignored. Most of you who grew up in a certain kind of church government, you have no, even if you were there your whole life, you have no idea 
why that model was embraced. It was just assumed. And so not only did we grow up in different models, but we don't even know why we grew up in different models. And so it's absolutely essential that I take some time and lay the foundation solidly so that you understand how the church is to function. All right, let's look together at the evidence for a plurality of leaders in each church. You have to start, I believe, with the Old Testament pattern. Because the Old Testament pattern provides for us the Jewish mindset. The most common New Testament word for the church's leader is the word elder. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Church Government, Monarchy, Anarchy, or Democracy. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Are you interested in attending the Master's Seminary? Countryside Bible Church is home to the Master's Seminary Dallas campus. Join Pastor Tom Pennington as he hosts the Master's Seminary Spring Preview Weekend, March 24th through the 27th at Countryside. You'll interact with Tom, attend seminary classes, and participate in the church life at Countryside. For more information and registration, go to thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You'll find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.